Welcome to They Live by Film, a platform dedicated to bringing you film discussion and interviews from around the world. I'm Adam Lundy, joined as always by Chris Haskell and Zach Bryant. Hello, gentlemen. How's things? Hello, hello. Hey, hey. It's been been a, been a couple of weeks. Nice to nice to talk to you guys again. Yeah. It's going to be good to to hear some opinions today on a on a couple of interesting interesting films. Before we we start off. Anyone seen anything recently they want to kind of give a shout out to? Uh, yeah, actually. Um, I've been trying to go through a lot of the horror from this year, you know, just trying to catch up as much as I can. Um, and I watched one that has kind of went through the festival circuit for a while that I've been very curious about. That's called, and I'm probably going to mess up how you pronounce it. It's called Skinamarnik. Arnik. It's supposed to be like a nursery rhyme is what it's a reference to. It's hard to really talk about what the movie's about. It's a very experimental type film. It's very low budget. So it's about like from the perspective of these kids in a house, but you don't really ever see the kids. You don't see the parents, not directly. Like a lot of it is the camera is up in the corner and it's just you're hearing the conversations or you're hearing the strange noises. And it try, I guess what I guess the best way to describe it is it's trying to bring back that feeling when you're a kid, like when you're like five or six years old and you're going through your dark house and you, you scare yourself, essentially. Like, what's that out in the corner? And the the film is very, what's a good word for it? it in, up to interpretation in that sense. So both things are real. If this, uh, the scares are actually really effectively done. It's probably as far as like scariest films I've seen this year. It's probably that one. Like as far as, this is creeping me out a pretty decent amount. You know, it's oh, one being the right mood for it, but it is um, really cool. It's a really interesting film. It's very slow, but, you know, cut the lights off, you know, just have that as your concentration. And I think it'll, it brought me back to when I was a kid, I used to be scared to death of my bedroom window. I lived out like in the middle of nowhere. So in my mind, every time I looked out the window, I saw a figure out in the distance, you know, and that scared me. And I'd, Fused to look at my window and that has a lot of that type of energy to it so hopefully it's going to uh come out a little bit more i think it's a very interesting film and looking at the letterbox reviews versus the imdb reviews is hilarious uh, <laughs> letterbox reviews have been very positive towards it and then it's been pretty much bombarded it, it called trash on imdb so take that for what you will what kind of uh mm. film there, are, there are two types of film lovers in this world uh, how do you spell that it sounds really interesting how do you spell the name of the film let, let me uh it's uh s-k-i-n a-m-a-r-i-n-k oh yeah i found it here skin at marine yeah sounds really interesting i'm gonna have to Put on my watch. Up. Oh, is that part of that? Like, there's that like nursery rhyme. It's like skinamarinka dinka dink. That's what it's from. Okay, so you know how to pronounce. It. I've never heard that, so I was like, I have no. I've I didn't know heard of it. I've <laughs> never heard of that, but it sounds sounds really interesting. I'm gonna put on my uh, put on my watch list. Interesting. Yeah, I never heard of that either. Um, I speaking Wait, of yeah, speaking of horror movies, I just finished. Um, uh, there's a. I'm going through this Christopher Lee box set uh, from Severin, the first one, the green one. And I'm almost through the, I, I went, I ranked them uh, or I put them chronological. So I, I just got to the latest one, um, which is from 1967. It's called the torture chamber of Dr. Sadism, which I was expecting. I know. Right. I was expecting to just be a straight like exploitation flick. So um, 
It was actually the German title is, I think, I'm not going to try to pronounce it, but I think it's The Pit and the Pendulum. So this is a pretty straight retelling of uh, Edgar Allan Poe's story. Um, and I didn't realize, you know, y'all y'all can um, make fun of me here, but I didn't realize The Pit and the Pendulum. I had never seen, or I've never read the story, number one. Number two, I didn't realize that, like, that's like the foundation for, I don't know, 20% of Christopher Lee's work. <laughs> it's just that one story. That and Vincent Price. I mean, Vincent Price did his right much uh, Edgar Allan Poe stuff as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that's the one I've like, seen. I've seen the Vincent Price pit in the pendulum, the one that Roger Corman did. Well, let me ask you this then, just to make sure it's the same general idea. I'm sure there's going to be differences, right? But like group of people get called to a faraway castle because they want to entertain the count right and then in the mysterious count turns out to be a little bit more nefarious than he seems at the at the start yeah that's like every vincent price film except for laura (laughs) (laughs) it's so funny yeah that's exactly and that's at least three movies in this christopher lee set but anyways (laughs) i started digging around and i was like oh it's just edgar Allan poe's influence so silly me for not knowing that but i guess i've learned um and then I just quickly want to mention one movie. And then before you go, Adam, I want to say one quick thing about the timing of when this episode drops. So I also saw Brief Encounter, which is the David Lean film. Beautiful oh, my movie. God. It's so, so good. Yeah. But like, I think David Lean's touch helps. But I also just think I'm a little bit obsessed with Noel Coward now. Like, I don't know that I've because Design for Living is one of my favorite Lubitsch movies. And specifically because of the dialogue and and the way the characters, the humor in it, essentially, it's just so funny. And the like, you know, he was writing all these plays in like the twenties, I guess, thirties, right, and maybe forties. And then he was he converted some of them into plays, um, and just I mean, some of them into movies. Excuse me. And uh, yeah, he's so funny. Like he just is a very I don't know, just a way with characters and and um, and the brief encounter. I won't go into like a full review, but it's so such a simple love story, it's just such a simple kind of rom com. But it's just the way that it's told is is perfect. Essentially, it's like a flawless one. Um, yeah, I could keep going. I've been watching a lot, but the, I'll I'll stop there. But I do want to say this is this episode is dropping on Thanksgiving, um, Friday. So happy oh, okay. Thanksgiving to all Americans that are listening. Um, and I'm very grateful and appreciative for you all uh, that actually tune in to listen to us <laughs> just chat around about movies. So, um, yeah, thank you. It's a bit of overwhelming or not overwhelming, but it's very humbling. And uh, I, I'm very appreciative of it. So thank you. Happy Killing Indians Day. I was going to make a small <laughs> pause, but I wasn't sure if I should. <laughs> <laughs> we celebrate who's, right here. Who's playing on Thanksgiving? Friday? Oh, the Lions and Cowboys. I'm trying to think who they're playing each. Uh, Lions playing the Bills, Cowboys playing the Giants. So let's go, Bills. Let's go, Giants. Well, I just mm-hmm. want to note before uh, we go any further uh, Washington does not have to win another game for the rest of the year. I am completely satisfied. <laughs> Who knew that Taylor Heineke was your savior? <laughs> I'm just saying, if he makes it to the play- if they make it to the playoffs somehow and play Brady, Brady's weakness is meme quarterbacks. So yeah, just... it's true. <laughs> so true. <laughs> um, all right, we won't get too far off the bat with football. 
Um, <laughs> just before we get into the films, then I've watched, I just want to shout out a, a few different things. I won't dwell on each of them too long because uh, there's a few things I want to shout out. Um, I uh, finally saw Pearl. Pearl's awesome. It's better yeah. than X. Really Disagree great. there, but it's great. <laughs> great film. I loved it. Watch. Yeah, it was, it was just, it was just a really, really great fun watch. Maya Goth is amazing. And you know, that movie is kind of amazing just because they did it kind of on a whim. They were just waiting for COVID protocols to end. And did yeah, a movie. It's yeah, it's cool. Um, three films I'm going to kind of talk about together. Uh, I wrote an essay on the website about them. Uh, really interesting set of films that came across on movie by this filmmaker from the that was making films during the French New Wave, but he's just like a forgotten filmmaker, a guy called Guy Gillet. And he made these three films called Love at Sea, Wall Engravings, and Earthlight. And they're just so cool. They're The best way I can describe them is like if Wong Kar Wai was in the French New Wave, just in terms of how he sort of portrays memory and melancholy and love and desire and all that stuff. So if you're a Wong Kar Wai fan and you have access to movie, I'm pretty sure they have like the global streaming rights to these films. They're very underseen, but it's like when you watch them, you're like, these films are like so influential. But yet nobody's, it's like that weird dichotomy where if more people had seen these movies, it probably would have been even more influential because you watch them and all you can think about is all these later filmmakers that are basically using this exact same style. Um, mm. Another film I saw a couple of days ago, which is the weird, the Al Yankovic story. Have any of you guys seen that yet? No, it's on my list though. Oh man, this film is fucking batshit crazy. Don't. <laughs> Just go into it assuming it's just a normal biopic and you'll be so happy because that's what I assumed. I assumed this is just a normal biopic. <laughs> uh, don't look up anything that happens in this movie. It's fucking crazy. Okay, uh, I, I might watch that soon, actually. It's, it's actually, it's so funny. Um, and then lastly, yesterday I was really lucky to see a screening of Barry Lyndon um, oh. that had a Q&A session with the person who was uh, part of heading up the Irish side of the production. Um, because a lot of it was filmed in Waterford, which is where my partner's from. Um, so we went down to Waterford to watch it in a theater there. Um, and loads of the people who were extras were there kind of telling stories, but on the set with like sort of dealing with Kubrick and Ryan O'Neill and all that stuff. So super interesting day out. It was nice. To, it was really cool just to hear about the production side. And then I hadn't seen the film in about 10 or 11 years. That film is so fucking funny. Holy crap. Yeah. It's hilarious. Yeah. Um, Neve was like really um, she was really wary of watching it she's like this is going to be the dullest movie about some Irish rogue yeah, yeah, yeah. military blah but she thought she was just as entertained as I was she thought it was brilliant as well so uh, that was always nice um, so yeah that's what I've been watching um, the last last couple of weeks since we since we last spoke that's awesome yeah Barry, Barry London's probably my favorite it's, it's like grown as my favorite Kubrick film over the years like I just love that movie yeah, it's a great film. I, it's one of those ones I'll probably watch again more often because I've always kind of been afraid to rewatch it because I watched it when I was like 17. So I was like, I just remember it as being kind of stuffy because I just didn't really get it. Yeah. But like now that I've watched it again, I, I'll, it's something I'll revisit a lot more often. We need to I do a double planned. feature on here of that and the favorite. I think they would actually go well together. That's the Yorgos Lactamos or something like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah it was his... Yeah last film that he did very before. cool yeah this might be an idea for future um but speaking of now chris do you want to give us an intro as to what we're going to be talking about today 
Sure. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I feel so honored. Um, I, I don't know that I do a lot of intros. Um, this is a big moment for me. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so the, the, you know, I think I'm Adam. Don't jump to the screen and slap me here. I, I noir as a genre probably doesn't make my top three genre. It, I, you know, a, a good noir I, I can get behind, but um, just a, a, the bog standard, like you know, like I, I can sit down and watch any '80s action movie. It doesn't matter if it's good or bad. I'm gonna like it, and that's kind of I think how I, I interpret your your the way you watch noirs. You just like the rhythms, you like the beats, yeah. Um, you like the backdrops, the shadows, and all that kind of stuff. And I totally get it. Like I, you know, uh, I get it. Um, but I was trying to think of how could we make my if I'm gonna pick, how, how, what would I pick for a noir week? And I was like, I wonder if any women have directed noirs, <laughs> and it turns out not that many. Um, but one interesting thing I heard in, in one of them, which we're going to talk about here in, in a moment, but um, two out of the three women that were the first three women in the uh, director's guild, uh, like the union, you know, the director's union here in Hollywood, the first three women, we're going to be speaking about two of them today. So this was a small club for a long time. I'm sure it's expanded now. Can I guess um, the third? <clears throat> yeah, yeah, yeah. The Dorothy Arzner? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Um, exactly. So we're, you know, we're we're gonna speak about a movie. Um, two, the two original ones were uh, Dorothy and then Ida Lupino, which we're gonna be speaking about first today here in a moment. And then the second one was, or the third one, excuse me, was Elaine May. Um, who I I already knew I liked, but yeah, I just I think uh, well, we'll get to that in just a moment. But I'm. I think she's unbelievable talent, but um, yeah. So first up is uh, the is the Hitchhiker from Ida Lupino, which was at the time, or maybe even still, it's talked about as the only classical noir from the Hollywood system directed by a woman, which is quite a feat. Um, and then the Elaine May movie we're going to talk about, which is Mikey and Nikki, which is certainly an unconventional noir, but I think it has enough elements to qualify. Um, so yeah, I don't know if cool. if y'all want to introduce the individual films, but that that was the theme. That was kind of why I set it up, and and uh, I, I, we'll get to it in just a second. But I'm so happy these films were chosen because I actually really enjoyed them both. But. Yeah. So with the Hitchhiker Dance is 1953. Ida Lupino, as you said. Um, yeah. As far as I'm aware, as far as my noir knowledge goes, I I couldn't I couldn't name another noir either before or after this that was directed by a woman. So I think that's a very fair assumption to make. Uh, for those who are unaware listeners, I'll just give you a brief sort of rundown from Letterboxd, which is uh, Roy and Gilbert's fishing trip takes a terrifying turn when the hitchhiker they pick up turns out to be a sociopath on the run from the law. Um, so I, I'd, I'd seen this already earlier this year, in fact, um, Chris and Zach, had either of you seen this before? Was this a first time watch for you guys? First time. Nice. Yeah, same thing. First time. Do you do you happen to have the the copy handy from the intro to the film? Because I love that intro, even as far as setting up the movie. It's like this is a story about a man, a gun, and a car. <laughs> it's something. It's like all oh, right. No, I don't have that. Unfortunately, no. It's, I don't own it. Um, I just streamed it. Okay. 
Um, yeah, free on, on Tubi here. Yeah, we have it on Prime here. Um, so that's, that's where I watched it um, many, many months ago. But it's still, I didn't, I was hoping to rewatch it before we got talking, but I just didn't have a chance over the last couple of days. Uh, but it's still so fresh in my mind. Um, this film is nine, is seventy-one minutes long, right? And I know we've memed, yeah. we've memed a meme. I thought about you immediately. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I look. I know <laughs> that we've talked about how much I love a short film. But what I love more is a film that knows how to pace itself correctly. Um, like to give you an example, as part of the film club, uh, you know, the Criterion Film Club that we do on Reddit. We watched Fallen Angel uh, this week, which was which is a, another film noir from Otto Preminger, which is about 95-ish minutes long, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. But that's a film that could probably do with another 15, 20 minutes, just because so much happens with the plot. It would have yeah. helped flesh things out a little bit better. So I don't mind if that film is 20 minutes longer because it makes it a better film at the end of it. Whereas what's great about The Hitchhiker is it's a perfect example of economic filmmaking. Yeah. Every one of those 71 minutes is perfectly paced and everything that needs to be said is said in a timely and efficient manner. It doesn't take ages to get into anything. It doesn't overdo any shots. It doesn't overdo any scenes, but it also doesn't leave out anything crucial. This film only needed to be 71 minutes. It didn't need anything less. It didn't need anything more. And each of it's perfect. This is honestly one of my favorite films. Uh, and you know, to say that only after seeing it once this year, to jump straight into you know, my, my, my top 100 that we, that I like to call it. Um, yeah, it, it just blew me away when I watched it. And the fact that even a few months later, pretty much all the film is so vivid in my brain kind of attests yeah. to that. Well, and Zach, I want to hear uh, just, just really quick on that point, just, just because I, I don't want to, I don't want to lose that point. So this is ranked as the 1,775th film of all time on They Shoot Pictures. And I couldn't help but feel that that's low. That's low. Yeah, that's low. I, I think it's just underseen because I'd never heard of this. Like, okay. never heard of it. So, which is interesting because yeah. of how this is like such an iconic film style setup. You know, the hitchhiker who turns out to be a bad guy. It's so it's such an influential kind of story. You know, we've seen it with the Hitcher. You know, the, say, the, I, the yeah. Rutger Hauer movies basically. It's just basically this idea of just kind of maybe just pushed the boundaries a little bit more in terms of violence and stuff like that. But it's basically the same story. And just to put it in context, this is below Napoleon Dynamite. That's, that's, well, that makes sense. Napoleon Dynamite is black. I like I Napoleon like... Dynamite as much as the next guy, but no. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's what I'm saying. Like, you know, I, I don't I don't want to say it's because she's a woman. I don't want to really go. I, I, who knows? But I do think it's a shame that this is not ranked higher because I don't know if it's the best movie ever made, but like for what it's trying to do, it's essentially a perfect movie, right? like i don't really know how to rank it but i mean just scene for scene like like you said there's no fat to trim like the the story's told well it was yeah i'm just i was shocked i I thought for sure it'd be a top 500 at least but yeah maybe it's it's, it doesn't have a physical release has any yeah uh kino at least in region a it does makes sense kino yeah that's the one that was (laughs) yeah like i wouldn't help like i wouldn't it doesn't stop me from wondering if if it had come out from Criterion 10 years ago, maybe it would be a little bit further up the list. You know, they do have a lot of influence on that. 
as much as we like to remember that Criterion is just a distribution company at the end of the day, they do hold a lot of influence when it comes to this kind of stuff, which is why I fully expect Come and See to be very, very high on the sight and sound list that comes out in a couple of weeks. Ooh, that'll be an interesting experiment. Yeah, Come and See was like, it's all over every single board in the last three years, basically, right? Yeah, I think it's now number one on Letterboxd. I think it's it, it surpassed it just, uh, Parasite. Yeah, it just surpassed Parasite, which is another film we might see creep into the top 250. So we'll have to wait and see in a couple of weeks. Maybe we'll do a discussion, listeners. Who knows? We'll have to wait and see. Um, <laughs> well, I keep interrupting. Zach, what did you think about The Hitchhiker? I like the hitchhiker a lot, actually. Um, one thing, and I think you just kind of get used to this, live it, you know, watching movies in a very postmodern sense. Um, I guess what I mean by that is when I started watching the film, and you know, they show the newspaper of this is the guy we're suspecting doing these killings. So when he showed up in the back of the car, I'm like, it's not him. Like there is some misunderstanding. He is on the run because of oh, all of this yeah, stuff. Yeah. And then I was like, "Oh shit, he just really did it." Okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> so you were expecting. I didn't even see it coming. <laughs> you were expecting something. You're, this is the problem with modern Hollywood and modern TV. They're all about subverting expectations. Fuck subversion of expectations. Just show <laughs> us what we want to fucking see. Uh, <laughs> that's that's the problem. We're brainwashed by having our uh, always having the rug pulled out from under us. <laughs> and I do want to know that, you know, this is something I think is so fascinating that's never changed in Hollywood or filmmaking at all. So the guy this is based on, I can't remember his first name. His last name was Cook. He was executed like a year or so before this movie came out of mm-hmm. crimes he did like two or three years prior. Mm-hmm. And it's like, how quick can you get that out? Like, <laughs> yeah, super quick. I'm just looking at it here. So the, yeah, the film came out in like early 1953. Um, and the murder spree happened in 1950 and he was holy shit what he was executed in December 1952 so we're talking about <laughs> four months between his execution and the film actually coming out I wonder if they started I mean because I'm sure the execution made some type of headlines I mean usually when you gas chamber mm. people up in California it makes some type of headline but yeah it was in San Quentin yeah um, but I, 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 I mean, you know, yeah. apparently he had the same eye problem so I thought, which I thought was a brilliant part of the film. Yeah, I yeah, will yeah, say that. Yeah. Like the whole, like, is he actually awake thing? I thought that was like one of the neatest parts of the movie. I, this is, that's, that's the thing. So I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up. Like, this was a thing for me. Like, was there anything necessarily new in this movie watching it in 2022? No, right? Like, it's a very straightforward story. But I just forget about directed by a woman. Like, just any movie, like, it just, it's just such a well-told story. Like, it's just, it's like the, the, the scene where he's resting the gun on his arm and you don't know if he's awake or asleep. That was done with like, the camera was held just the right amount to kind of build that suspense. It wasn't held like a second too long or it wasn't just like flashed over there. Like they really, you know, she knew, she knew how to build the suspense. And so she stayed in each scene for what feels like an appropriate amount of time. But because she was so economical in the way that the story was told that even though each scene lasted like quote unquote, like a long time or was patient or slow or like the right amount of time, like the overall effect was very quick and you just kind of, you're just, you're just humming along in the story, uh, which I loved. I just, it was so brilliant. Just a test to how talented Lupino was, you know, 
as a director and as an actress as well you know she was she was also very talented as an actress she starred in a lot a lot of movies mm-hmm. um but she has another film that she that she directed um but that she also had one of the leading roles in as well called the bigamist i don't know if you guys have seen or heard of that one Mm-mm. um really good film it stars uh, joan fontaine as well basically as two women um caught between the same guy um basically one guy's kind of living a double life between two different cities and he has two different girls on the go one of them is joan fontaine one of them is ido lupino and she made the film as well and um, yeah it's just about um it's just about how this 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 guy's a real asset and how he plays with him along and stuff so that's that's a great film as well i think that one is a bit more well received in terms of like lists and stuff. So I wouldn't be surprised to see that one a little bit higher on the day shoot pictures lists. Um, but yeah, it just kind of goes to show, as I said, how how talented Lupino was. Just she just understood movies, you know, as an actress, but all, and also yeah. as a filmmaker herself. She just understood the medium. Uh, I do have a question for you, Adam. Since I know you're you're more than noir stuff, so have you seen On Dangerous Ground? With and it's um, her and Nicholas Ray directed. No, I haven't. I haven't even heard of it to be honest with you. If Nicholas I just Ray saw like the sure second one when I pulled her up on Letterbox, but I was curious because it's almost like because she did that in '51, and I'm it looks kind of like a noir from the way it reads. So I'm like, it's almost like she learned from that and then took it to do her own, which I think is very neat that they were that you know, almost like she got like a little almost like that old Hollywood method, right? Like. You, you promote within your studio, you promote with like the camp, the DP goes up the director sort of idea. And you kind of, yeah, that, that was happened a lot back in the, you kind of cut your teeth doing one thing before you did something else. It's like, uh, Mark, Mark, was it Mark Robson who made that film we watched recently in the film club, Chris boxing one, uh, with Humphrey Bogart. Uh, oh, okay. Was, yeah. 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 I think yeah. it was Mark Robson, but like he was like an edit, he was the film editor for those really good Val Luton horror movies yeah um the leopard man and all that kind of stuff he was the editor on those films before he was allowed to direct his own movies so yeah i think that happened quite a lot back in those times you just kind of cut your teeth doing one thing and then someone's like all right let's give them a shot at this instead and see how they get on and go and kind of go from there which i guess if you're you know we're even today you know uh female directors are a rarity um so back then i could see a studio like you know, if she wants to do this, they're like, okay, but you're going to have to learn under such and such. We're not just going to give you a budget. So, you know, throw yeah. them with Nicholas Ray and then go from there. See how you know, that. Th- I was watching a horror movie, a Mexican horror movie recently called Caltiki. It's like a, it's like a folklore, I guess, in, in Mexico. And it's essentially like uh, one of these Godzilla type stories and maybe like uh, Godzilla, maybe more, a little bit more like the blob. Um, where there's this immortal kind of monster that that comes and you know is like woken up by something and uh, attacks the city. But the reason it's just on the thread of what we're talking about, the the guy from Mexico was an established director there, and he let this young upstart special effects guy called Mario Baba take over and direct the picture. <laughs> and so it's cool sometimes you see that um, you know, and then uh, Fellini got his start because of. Alberto, shoot, I used to know this off the top of my head, but Fellini's first film was a co-directed by this Alberto guy. Um, so anyways, it, I, do, I do think it's common, especially in the 50s, yeah, kind of where we're at, 50s and 60s, I do think it's common to see that. Um, but 
I mean, it's kind of fascinating the idea, you know, now and even like, especially in the seventies when it was just like, this guy just got out of school. Here's the, here, here's $10 million. See what you can do with it. <laughs> yeah, it's like, okay. yeah. yeah. I mean, honestly, even Ty West, we were talking about Pearl earlier. Ty West was uh, an intern for Larry Fessenden of all people for like years. So Man, people have wondered the Larry Fessenden system at this point. I mean, it's it's amazing because the guy has never had like a super major hit, but he's so influential in the horror. But that's a whole another topic for another day. Yeah. But Larry Fessenden's really cool. Next time one of us is sick, you can do the Larry Fessenden specials. Like. <laughs> <laughs> um. So, question on the Hitchhiker, I guess for y'all, like, you know, is this uh, <clears throat> um a good Noir directed by a woman? Is this just a good noir? Um, and and how what's the importance of bringing up the fact that a woman directed it? Because I, I don't want to like I mean I do want to leave that as kind of an open question for y'all, but I just as I was watching this, I just felt like this is just a fantastic movie. Like it's it's yeah, I'm so glad it was directed by a woman, but like it's I don't really know how to talk about that in the right way because it's just like an awesome movie. I do well, say, saying it. Yeah, oh, it's no, go ahead, sir. No, I was just I was just gonna say, you know, I, I think I mean it's both in that sense. You know, I think it's you know, if you didn't tell me it was directed by a woman, I would never know. But knowing that, and I think one thing that's interesting, and it's something, you know, I watch a lot, you know, when you sit there and you look back on that knowledge, I think sentimental uh, sentimentality between the two men who's I can't remember their names now, but the two hostage men, mm-hmm. almost like that connection, I think very much can come from someone who is is a woman a lot more interesting i think there'll be more focus on that in a sense and i think that's what makes the movie better too like because i at least believe yeah they're going to stick this out even though as our hitchhiker mentions later at least one of them could have survived if they just you know didn't worry so much about the other so you're saying yeah so you're saying that the way that the story focused on their relationship knowing not not that it's that's how a woman would direct it but knowing that a woman directed it you're saying it like you you don't think men in that time would have been as likely to focus on the relationship and is that kind of what you're saying in a sense like i sit there and think you know if i'm sitting there directing that movie while that's a brilliant way to go about it i'm gonna sit there you know maybe that's just more my sentimentality about my sensibilities but like going for a pulpier element or going for for mm. you know the the spectacle of it or the scenario of it would be a lot more interesting to me and i think what helps the film is it takes such a simplistic an emotional in a lot of way element to it I and mean, i'm not saying men can't do that or women would exclusively do that and not do the other but i think that's what makes it interesting is you know i, I think about it a lot like there's a lot of there's several women who have made like rape revenge films and they're always fascinating to watch uh, because mm-hmm. they film it so differently than men do. And of course, right. there's a little bit more obviousness there of why they would do that. But it is fascinating to see that differences in how they play out, just because it's not unimportant, uh, but it's, you know, it's it's just a different way of doing things. It's it's highlighting that difference that can bring out really cool elements from any film. Yeah. Because it's a different perspective and a different eye. I, I completely agree with what Zach's saying. This film... First of all, yeah, this is just a great film that happens to be made by a female director. But what this film has that a lot of other 
actiony, thrillery, film noirs, whatever we want to call them, films don't have is this level of emotional, emotional and psychological vulnerability, uh, both between the two main sort of characters, the hostages, but also uh, with the with the villain. He's such a complex villain. There's yeah. a lot of a lot of deep he's obviously deeply disturbed psychologically but also emotionally there's a lot of stuff that can be unpacked and that he doesn't unpack and that's why it kind of leads him to be the way that he is which when you watch other films about psychopaths and stuff from this era a lot of other sort of film the wars about psychopaths everything is so clinical with like i'm trying to remember the name of the film and there's two versions of the story that came out kind of close together I think we watched one of them in the film club. I don't know if you remember about this guy who's holding a house party and this, and then this deranged dude who broke out from jail is kind of holding the place up until the boat can get them out of the house. Um, we watched oh. one version of it in the film club, but there's another version of it as well that I just, I can't think of the name of either of them. Um, but in that film, in, in those films, everything is so clinical and kind of precise like picking out exact moments in your childhood that makes you whereas this it's just much more it's just much more tied to emotions as opposed to sort of really clinical exact surgical almost you know reasons behind why a person does what they do um which i think perhaps not again idol lupino co-wrote the script for this so we can kind of say this not just as a director but also as a person who wrote these characters and wrote this dialogue perhaps having that kind of woman's touch helped give it that kind of emotional and psychological vulnerability which helped it stand out from a lot of other films of this era as well and um, but ultimately it's just ha- it's a great film that just happens to be made by a woman at the end of the day it's it's a it's a great film um if you swap her out for a man i don't know what changes but uh, which is probably which is you know that i don't want to call it a compliment i don't want to sound like i'm i'm saying good girl you did a good film well done that kind of way but yeah it's just a great film that just so happens to be made by a woman that's kind of the best way i can put it can we hang on the the what you said about the villain uh for a second because that's i think that's one of my favorite parts about the movie so maybe and maybe just for anybody who hasn't seen it so we the just you know t- 30 seconds let me just kind of give it because i think this is important so opening credits roll as the credits roll one by one you see this killer get into cars and then you see the victims of his murdering spree right so even just in the opening credits you see a killer start to kill his victims and um and in the background you see like the newspaper saying you know oh there's this killer on the loose right so I mean, just even by the time the movie starts, there's already a suspense built up over the notion of a hitchhiker, right? And then it, opening shot is, or one of the first shots is him getting in a car with these two guys, these two kind of like chuckleheads that are going down. They're going to go on a vacation and they're you know, leaving their families. And one guy hasn't left his family since the wedding. And, you know, they have this little bit of dialogue. The guy gets in and they light a cigarette and ask him if he wants to smoke. And then there's a gun on him. And then that starts basically the the rest of the movie, right? So it's even in that it's a very economical storytelling because all of the exposition is done in the background of the opening credits, which is great. So it allows you to really just like dive into the story. And then essentially, there's this ten. The, one of the main points of tension throughout the movie 
is as he holds them hostage, he's trying to get to Mexico. And there's this radio show that's like a news show that's going on that's telling them, you know, he, he wants to know, do the police understand where he's at? And did the police are the, is he connecting them with the two boy with the two guys Gilbert and Roy I think right yeah Gilbert and Roy are, are they all do, do they understand that they're connected and are they looking for that car and at the moment that he hears that they're connected and he hears that the police are out looking for their car he's going to shoot them and go find a new car right so that's where like I mean there's a lot of moments of tension but that's like a consistent theme of tension that kind of runs throughout the movie right. Is this radio show and, and are they going to be able to even survive? Um, but just, I just want to set that backdrop. Now to your point, there's so many quiet moments in that um, as he has them, as, as they're working their way towards Mexico, there's a lot of moments in the movie where they're just hanging out. Like they'll be at a campfire and they'll be cooking food and he's right there with them or there's like long shots of them sleeping and you don't know if he's sleeping or not. And you can see them trying to think about like, is this our chance to get away? Um, and when he does talk, it's interesting because she holds the camera, like if he, cause he's a very uh, gruff, like aggressive person. Right. And everything they do, he, he's trying to be one step ahead of them. And, and he's always trying to shut him down. And he's thinking like, like there's a scene where the horn breaks, the, the car kind of breaks. And he, he first thing he says is, don't you dare cut the radio wire. So he's always thinking, you know, like you can fix the horn, go fix the car, but don't touch the radio wire because I need to hear what's going on. So he's always sort of like one step ahead. But every time he says something or a lot of the times when he says something, they'll hold the camera for a bit on him. And it has this really interesting effect. It's like a it's almost like you, you just get to kind of sit with what he's saying instead of just just taking it in and jumping to the next scene, it's almost like you're just, as the audience, like I was, you're just kind of forced to sit there and like put yourself in this situation or, or kind of be, you know, like what, like how would you react to that? Or it just kind of makes it where it's like, I think it's very powerful the way that it's done just by holding the camera like an extra couple of seconds, not too long, but I think it, it gives weight to his words and it makes his character more interesting because you almost it makes it more intimate and real because it's like, you know, he says it and then there's that moment if if you were actually there with him where you would just have to kind of sit with what he just said and like process it. And she and she does the same thing with the audience. So we're all just kind of sitting there for a second and like, you know, internalizing what's being said. Um, and even in that, I think it gives him a little bit of depth and makes his character more interesting. You know, I think uh, a big part of what works with that is he's very he's very chaotic. He, very unpredictable in what he does like he's obviously methodical in how he wants to do this he's got a plan but he doesn't need both of them and that's kind of a thing that i think is a big downfall for him and i don't think it's a fault of the movie i just think it's a decision he made was to keep both but it's like that's probably the bad decision to do is to keep both oh uh, interesting yeah and it's um because there's always that question of will they eventually overpower him or anything like that and i think he knows that too like so i think you know that whole scene where he's making one friend shoot the can out of the hand of the other puts a lot of fear into them of what he'll mm -hmm. do and i think mm -hmm. every time he says something you know every opera like you were talking about the horn obviously the first thing they're thinking is okay what can we do while we have the hood open 
and he's pretty much just getting rid of it then so it's it, yeah it's, it's it's chaotic but it's thoughtful in that sense that he's not he's not going by the seat of his pants he has he has an idea of what he wants to do yeah solve quickly and I will say that William Talman, who plays the role of Emmett Meyer as the bad guy, is genuinely one of the best, best sort of portrayals as a villain in movie history. Oh, he's so, so good. good. So, yeah. so good. It's just, it's just, there's just so much conflict in his character. And like, like you said, he's just, he's so chaotic. And to pull that off without coming across as goofy or hammy yeah. and actually be scary because he is, he's like, he's, he's scary. He's unpredictable. You don't know what this dude is going to do. Um, it's just really a, an attestment to the, to the performance that Tomlin put in. It's, it's one of, one of the best villains, you know, in terms of like an actual human, not talking about monsters or, you know, Michael Myers and stuff. We're talking about an actual movie villain um, an actual human villain who makes decisions and stuff like that. He's one of the, he's one of the greatest I've ever seen on film. Like, Different, different kind of acting to, you know, like Al Pacino and The Godfather. He's not like he, he doesn't. He obviously doesn't come from you know a, a proper school of acting, but that kind of adds to the the, the harsh kind of reality. It, it's such a real performance. It's yeah, it's really gritty. That's the best way to put it. Gritty. It's a really gritty yeah. performance. And, and it has a realist to it. Like you're talking about, like kind of like Michael Corleone. Like Michael Corleone's a great character. It's really well written. But it's always feels, you know, it's always a movie feel to it. You know, this is a guy, when you talk about Meyer, he's real. Like, not this direct character, but this person is real multiple ways. And that's what makes him frightening. Um, Of course, we know this is based off a real person, but just now there are people like this. And also, it's like they could have just dragged this dude off the street. You know, that's what it kind of feels like. They just dragged this dude off the street and it's like, here, just be yourself for 70 minutes. And he's like, okay. Give me your and, you know, <laughs> and, and it's a good balance too, because you know we talk about this in old films where you you know old thing of villains they're de- they're deformed or they have something unique about them. And while that's true for him, it never feels like he still feels like a regular person. Like yeah, he's got the eye thing, but he's still very unassuming. Yeah. Like if I saw him on the street, you wouldn't think a whole lot about him. Like that's kind of a scary looking dude in a way, depending on what, the context of when you see him. But beyond that, I mean walking down the street he just seems normal and adam's looking for something i'm just trying to figure out what it is <laughs> uh, i'm just getting ready to unfrustrate all the listeners that i frustrated by talking about two films and the plot but not the names of the films so um i i, I will have i will i hold the answers to, the, to that question as to what the fuck films was i talking about a few minutes ago and um, i have those answers so the one that we watched was part of the monthly expiring pick so it wasn't a proper film club pick it was one of those monthly expiring ones um and in 1939 it was called blind alley and oh, yeah, yeah. i rated oh, it four stars and chris rated it two and a half um <laughs> and yeah. then the it's remake cool. version <laughs> came out 10 years later with william holden and that's called the dark past and that's included in columbia noir number three okay uh, that's what i was checking i couldn't remember which columbia noir box it was in it was in that one um, but those are films that take a very clinical look at at psychopathic characters and everything moves so easy in those films oh we found this exact moment in your past which makes your dreams so crazy which makes you crazy boom now you're not crazy anymore happy days 
Um, those are very sort of clean clinical views of, of mental health and mental, mental illness, um, whereas the hitchhiker is much more realistic and much more chaotic and vulnerable. Do, do we, can we talk about the ending briefly? We do it every week. Why would this be any different? <laughs> I don't know. All, I guess, spoilers, you know, here, if you want to jump ahead for a minute or two, but the, everything we're talking about is why I think the ending works so well, because there's a moment kind of halfway through the film where one of the, one of the uh, victims says to the other, uh, I think Gilbert is the one who's, so Roy is the one who's a mechanic and he's the one who kind of starts breaking early and starts fighting back. And you assume he's going to get shot because he starts actually like trying to escape or, or he's, he's the one that calls for the helicopter or, you know, he's the one that kind of starts to break. And Gilbert's the one that kind of has a cool head. And he says something about halfway through the film. He's like, just wait for the right moment. Like, we'll know when it's the right moment. Just wait. And then I think there's this amazing thing that's done in the last like three minutes. I mean, it's, it's you know, five minutes, whatever. It's very quick where you, they, he, he uh, Roy, who's the more, you know, I guess the one who's a little bit more uh, unpredictable and, and, you know, uh, obviously affected by this more outwardly, he yells at, uh, at, at the uh, villain. Um, I keep forgetting his name. He yells at um, Myers. And he says, you're nothing without your gun, you know? And he's like, he's like, you're nothing. Like you, 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 you chase us all here. You assume he's going to get shot then, <laughs> but even then he doesn't get shot. And I think by that point in the movie, there's this interesting thing where you realize at the same time that the, the main, the Gilbert and Roy realize this, that Myers is not going to kill him. He's all talk. Like he has been killing but for whatever reason, this situation is different. And I don't know if it's because he's so close to getting to Mexico. He just wants to kind of get out of his villain life. Like maybe you know, maybe he doesn't want to be that anymore, or he just wants to escape and doesn't want to make waves. I don't know. But you realize kind of at the same moment that they do, that they have a little bit of an upper hand here. And I don't think they knew that the police were going to be waiting for him because that all happened kind of behind the scenes. And the radio had said that they no longer had them connected, that they were on a fishing trip, and then Meyer was still in Arizona or something. I, yeah, I can't yeah, exactly yeah. Where, but yeah, so to them, as far as they knew, nobody was looking for them. And, but they, exactly. But even still, like you could see that their moment was coming. Even before the police kind of showed up, it felt like, they, they were starting to get the upper hand, like like it was written in a way where I think it, it was just perfectly done, where you could just see these like the tide turning right just at the right time. And then you could, you know, and then you saw the strength of the Gilbert, the physical strength of the Gilbert guy. You know, it's not even really that much of a fight with Myers once they actually get into a fight. He's stronger than him. And he just is waiting for that right moment to where Myers is not too far away from him with a gun. Right. And, and you know, I look at Myers, it's up. Uh... In some ways, I, I kind of wonder, and this kind of goes back to the complexity of his character, if a little bit he has almost a death wish in a way, not directly where he's, you know, his plan is to go out like suicide by cop or anything, but like the decision he makes with the hostages is just fascinating because he does mm -hmm. take very much an intimidating approach. You mm -hmm. know, the threat of killing them once he, they're done with them is a very intimidating thing to do. 
But the double-edged sword to that is you were telling these people they have nothing, they have nothing to lose. Yeah. And yeah, that's yeah. very dangerous to tell two people who have have a physical advantage over you and that they're they're gonna die unless they do something. Yeah, Psychologically the most, the, it works great, but yeah. The most complicit hostage is one who thinks that they're all they gotta do is just do what they're told and they're gonna be fine. Yeah, get me get me here and you'll be on your way. Exactly. So you're you're kind of instilling that fight and fight or flight instinct within a person. It's that deep rooted instinct when the shit hits the fan. Are you gonna fight or are you gonna lie down? And he's instilling that in them by essentially telling them that they're dead meat. It's it's a it kind of attests to how complex of a character he is. He's obviously smart enough that he's gotten this far, but not smart enough to know when to shut the fuck up. Yeah, it's um, almost like an ego thing for him. Yeah. Like he's he just feels like, you know, as kind of uh I guess it was Gilbert or Roy, I can't remember now, but like, you know, he's pretty much saying he's the baddest motherfucker with the gun. And when he gets called out on that, it it gets to him because there is truth to that. He yeah. he feels like he has so much power with that. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I'm just this makes me think of the villain in Lost, the the kind of mousy guy with the glasses. That ben ends Linus, up, yeah, Michael Emerson. Okay, yeah. Yeah, Ben, what's his name? Ben what? Ben Linus is the character Linus. name. Michael yeah. Emerson is the actor. Okay, yeah, Ben Linus. It kind of reminds me of him a little bit almost because he gets into these in the show. I mean, not that this is a Lost discussion podcast, but well, like... It can be if you want it to be. <laughs> You know, he gets into these intense moments where his physical weakness is almost used as like a mind trick because everybody in the show is essentially stronger than him, right? It's like a cast of Survivor or something. And then this like mousy guy comes in. Um, But he, like, there's similarities, I think, in the way that he uses his vulnerability. I think Lost takes it to another level. Um, But, you know, there's, I remember that very vividly. There's a lot of moments where you're like, oh, Ben Linus is going to die right here because he's like, you know, like they get the physical upper hand on him. And, uh, and I mean, you know, Michael, I've always said Michael Emerson's the most uh, punched actor in Hollywood because I swear <laughs> that happened every other episode where he'd get his face uh, in. Yeah. But anyway, but wonder- yeah, not a lost podcast, but yeah, I definitely agree that, you know, he, and it goes back to his unassuming part. Like he, he has to have the gun and he realizes that, but he also... I think does a good job of break trying to break them down psychologically. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's his hope. Like he's broke them down so much that they won't fight, that they will just accept their fate. And one of them, you know, that's kind of the debate they had. What was it one night where somebody said, we need to go ahead and do it. And he's like, well, there's no reason to kill him if he ain't trying to kill us. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's such an interesting idea that these men are discussing. Like they're, they're both kind of agree that this is going to have to happen, but it's, how they go about it and how long they're going to put this off. Yeah. How long do you wait to do the risks? Because I mean, I, I kind of agree. I can't, I wish I could remember which one said which, but like the idea that we need to go ahead and do this, we don't need to wait till the last second. I kind of agree with them. And I'll honestly, like, it's like, if you wait till the end, there's nothing you can do. Right. And that's kind of, and, and that's the interesting part. I think it's a, a real discussion people would have for sure. Well, just in closing, I, I mean, I think that's a, that's a great point. Um, I, I'm curious, where, how does this, have you all seen any other Ida Lupina movies? Uh, uh, you saw one, didn't you? Yeah, just, just The Bigamist. Uh, it's the only other one I saw. 
the bigamist. Okay, yeah, I'm just going through her catalog. She, after Which... the bigamist, she moved to basically exclusively TV, which is super interesting. Yeah, that happens like... to a lot of people in cry, who do crime movies somehow. Like, mm. I've noticed that. Yeah, they'll end up like that. We talked about City of the Dead last week, and he ended up being a TV director too. Right. Yeah, that's true. What was his name? John Lulin Moxley? Moxley? Something like that. Moxley. Yeah, yeah I remember London. Or, yeah, I remember Moxley being in there. Yeah. So, so she did this and then the bigamist, and that's it. Everything else was TV shows from here on out. Yeah, she was she was talented, but I, I could kind of see like where she would actually fit really well on TV. Like when I was watching it, I was like, it has kind of a TV feel to some of it. But I think that's just being a crime, almost feeling like a crime procedural has more to do with that than the style or anything. You're kind of right. Like if this was an episode of a Twilight Zone, it wouldn't be totally out of place, right? Yeah, I was thinking more Alfred Hitchcock Presents, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. I get the the idea, yeah. And definitely, I'm sure you guys will agree. And I swear this, it's probably a coincidence, but that it's an early shot of the film where you see the silhouette of the of the hitchhiker going across the street and i'm just mm-hmm. like that's the poster for the hitcher it's like mm. turned but i was like I, I wonder if it's a coincidence but it almost feels weird if it if it is a coincidence um yeah what a, what a fun discussion we probably could easily talk about hitchhiker for another hour um just a fun just a fun good movie i'm really glad we had a chance to see it uh now is where we um one of my favorite segments of the show, Collection Corner. Um, I'm I'm gonna just focus on this is the you know Criterion and Arrow. This is the season for them right now. It's the 50% off sale. Um, Barnes and Noble, Target, Amazon. Um, there's probably more places that that have caught on to the fact that people buy Criterion in November now. Um, but I found there's there's a couple that I had been. Uh, if you go to Barnes and Noble, they had always been unavailable. Um, I don't know if it's just a stock issue or if it's the ones that people buy, you know, quickly. I don't know. Um, but I went to Amazon and I found so three Criterion, uh, three they're all Criterion, three Kurosawa movies, so Ikiru, Stray Dog, and Lower Depths, um, an Altman movie, and Three Women. Uh, two Otsu films. There was a, a, a box set they'd, I mean, like a mini box they'd put out of A Story of Floating Weeds. And then Otsu remade that same movie, Floating Weeds. So they come together. Tin Drum, which is just a wild movie. Um, a Visconti film, The Leopard. Three films by Jean Renoir. Um, the Golden Coach, French Cancun, and Elena and her men come together in a set. And then, uh, Adam, I'm saving the best for last because I know you were excited about Onibaba. Um, so that was, Onibaba. that was, yeah. It's <laughs> a good movie. So yeah. good. So this makes me complete up to the first 250 criterions now. Oh, man. Um, yes, that's awesome. And I have just a little bit over 400 total. Um, but I'm very slowly, I think I've, I've done the math between the flash sale that happens twice a year and then these two months i think i'm going to try to get around i, I did a so it's, it's a random number but there's a logic behind it around 32 a year so it's going to take me a long time but the thing my favorite thing about criterion is that they don't really go out of print unless obviously like you know they can always lose the rights but they don't do like limited editions so as long as they have the rights they're always in print which is which is nice about them 
I want to note that your 32 average a year is how many criterions I own. Okay. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and uh, you said you got Altman, right? Yeah. So did you get images for Adam? Yeah. Yeah. That's a good, good. Christmas gift for both of you. Perfect. Uh, along with a puzzle. Yeah. It's like, please send him a puzzle with it. <laughs> I will, you can do I will it. happily send either of you my copy of images. I got <laughs> Who do you have? Eureka's copy? Is that which one uh, you have? I think Arrow did it. Arrow did one. Hold on. No, maybe I'm wrong. Uh, I know the cover. I just can't remember which dis uh, distribution is on it. Because it's, the, I think it's the magnifying glass with like images written inside of it. If I remember, yeah, right. yeah, it's arrow, arrow, arrows. When during their academy range, arrow academy. Nice. What about y'all? What have y'all been collecting? Um. So I picked up my first one hundred one films film. Um. Are you familiar with them, Chris? One hundred one films. Well, yeah, especially recently, they've been doing a lot of the same stuff that Vinegar Syndrome has been putting out, which is interesting. Okay, but um, yeah, I, yeah, I had heard of them, but I didn't really know much about their output or films they put out or anything like that. But I was looking for a copy of a particular film that just happened to have been released by them. So mm. I was like, okay, well, now is as good a time as any to get my first one. So mm. it's such a weird film to have a nice, um, nice edition of. Um, okay. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's called Ghost Watch. You heard of this film, Chris? Ghost Watch. Ghost Watch. No. Uh, Let me see. Show the cover. Well, the, co the cover won't really give it away. So I'll show you, but I will show you the packaging in a second. But Ghost Watch is basically back in the 90s. Um, yeah. BBC coming up to Halloween did a live stream of what was purported to be a haunting in a family home. They had all the normal BBC hosts, including Michael Parkinson, doing okay. all this stuff. What the public didn't know is that it was all, it was fiction. It was a, it was a fake documentary. Um, but th this wasn't told. The public was thinking this was a live stream of all these ghostly yeah. stuff happening in this house. And there was loads of complaints, you know, to Ofcom, which is the, the British communications regulator about it and everything like that. Just a really interesting piece of TV history that they, that they put out this kind of thing on on primetime BBC, and they yeah. had someone someone as well respected as Michael Parkinson hosting it, <laughs> and you know pretending that ghosts and demons are real and talking to like fake parapsychologists and all this kind of stuff, um, oh. while this, while all these ghostly happenings are being recorded and live streamed by BBC. Um, yeah. But this is it. So this is the packaging. Really nice, cool packaging. Uh, very chunky, has a nice little booklet and everything in there uh, from 101. It's a limited edition. It's only just come out. So it was just really happy timing that I was like, it was just, you know, around Halloween, I was watching a lot of horror movies and I saw this on like YouTube split into like 15 parts when I was like 14 or 15 years old because I uh -huh. heard about it and I thought it sounded uh -huh. really cool. Uh -huh. um, and then obviously coming around to Halloween time, I was like, I'd love to watch Ghost Watch again. I wonder if there's like a good you know, Blu-ray release of it. And then I just so happened to stumble across this. So I was really happy to pick that up. Um, That's and then the, crazy. Yeah, really, really, really strange. Um, really strange film, bizarre um, circumstances, how it happened. So that's why I'm just so surprised there's such a nice Blu-ray edition of this movie because it's just such a random one to have a good edition of. Uh, the other thing I just want to give a quick shout out before we get to Zach, um, which... 
is a sort of shout out to uh, an upcoming interview that you've done, Chris. So I'm going to give a shout out to Radiance Films, who mm. are probably going to be like one of my one of the like the Region B Blu-ray sort of companies that I'm kind of most excited about at the moment. Oh yeah. Um. So under your guidance, I pre- I did do the pre-order for their January release bundle, uh-huh. um, which is the Working Class Go to Heaven and Big Time Gambling Boss, and that comes with some art cards as well. Um, and I was so surprised like by how good of a deal it was, you know, including shipping to Ireland, it was like 36 euro, it's amazing. you know, for two movies and a bunch of art cards. That's a good deal as far as I'm concerned. Um, so I have that pre-ordered as well. I'm really excited to get those through and it's it's going to be a, a company I'm going to be keeping my eye out on. They already have a box set that I'm interested in as well. Um, the, the Franco Nero one. Um, so I'm going to try and pick that up at some point as well. Hopefully it doesn't go out of just, print quickly i know it's a limited edition but let's yeah. pick that up maybe maybe next month just to tease that episode a little bit um so fran simeone was the the person who sat down he, he joined arrow pretty early on if not not the founding team and it was his decision to be more than a horror label to be a cult kind of film label yeah. even though that's not his style of filmmaking. <laughs> so his, his, you know, he's much more in line with like a Criterion or Eureka Masters of Cinema. That's more his, the kind of films that he likes. Um, but he saw this niche and, and helped. There was enough people on the Arrow team that liked a lot of the genre stuff and the exploitation stuff that he said, hey, I think this is the direction we need to go. And, he, you know, he had the Arrow Academy line for a long time. That was a lot of his stuff. Um, and, um, yeah, really good taste in movies, which is nice now that he's getting to run his own show. Um, so I can't, I can't wait to see what, what he puts out. But like you said, some of the ones that already announced are very cool, including two, which will, which I won't say anything else. Cause I'll let the episode drop, but including some movies that have never had a physical release anywhere and are essentially like forgotten films that he heard about just by, you know, in the way that you were joking about that four and a half hour documentary on, on ducks or whatever earlier. Um, like it was the same thing where he just said like heard of these movies and then a copy turned up and he was just jumped all over it and was able to put them out. So anyways, can't wait for that label. It's going to be really good. Um, yeah. I'm really, really excited about to see where it goes over the next few years in terms of releases yeah. and stuff like that. Cause so far from the ones you know that I've pre-ordered and the ones that they have announced already, just looks like really cool, interesting stuff. And it's yeah. kind of a bit more up my alley. I know you guys are much more the grindhousey kind of guys, and I'm uh. that's not really my speed. And uh-huh. uh, once he has announced, kind of seen a bit more uh, my my side of the tracks. Yeah. Probably you, Zach. You picked up anything recently? Uh, I have, so I get, I will, you know, we've done interviews with a couple different places like this, but where I live out in the boonies of Virginia, North Carolina, I made a three and a half hour trip out to Orbit DVD in Asheville, North Carolina. Um, Great location. Like, seriously, I was, you know, it's one of those places I was there for two hours and I probably could have been there a whole lot longer. Um, but I made a point while I was down there to actually have a real budget. Um, so I bought quite a few things. Um, main things I bought was, um, I got the BFI edition of the proposition on 4k brilliant movie. I don't know if either of you guys have seen it, but I actually think both of you would like it. Um, Nick cave was one of the writers for it. And, uh, 
for the film and did the score, obviously. So that's a great one. Uh, I got Blue Underground's uh, Quiet Days and Clichy. So I'm now up to date on 4Ks for Blue Underground, even though I have no idea what that movie is. Um, <laughs> quick note about that. So the, the slipcover they show on Amazon is not the actual slipcover of the movie. And because it caught me off guard when I picked it up and I was like, oh, it's because this has boobs on it. So they can't do that. <laughs> um, and then I got uh, Ryan House releasing Pieces, which is one of my favorite slasher movies. Uh, it's been meaning to get this forever. Um, and then I got um, I'm up to date on Death Crocodile again. I got their Zero Grad. I have no idea what that movie's even about. I'm just picking up everything they put out at this point. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then finally, I mentioned him, Eureka. I got the Old Dark House, um, James Whale film. Uh, I got it with a slipcover. So it was a very fruitful day, and I was super excited. And I will admit, some of that excitement went out when I got home and my PS5 got delivered. But, you know, <laughs> still a very exciting day. The Old Dark House is funny as fuck. That's so, it's, <laughs> it's just, it's, it's, I, I've seen that movie twice. I hated it the first time. And then I loved it the second time because the first time I was expecting, a creaky gothic horror film mm-hmm. forgetting that it's made by james whale and then <laughs> i loved it the second time because i was like this film basically invented camp yeah. um yes yeah. awesome film yeah and i'm uh, i haven't seen it in years so i'm real excited to do it eureka does re- like i'm i have two of their films with slips their slips are great like people don't talk about them enough but i see why people kind of try to go out of their way to get them they're very nice yeah i do if, if a movie comes out from them that i want to see i always try and get the slip um i did it recently with um with the most dangerous game i don't remember if i talked about that the last time i don't know if it arrived by the time uh by the time we last spoke but they have this the most dangerous game um, oh that's nice i like that yeah it's a cool little slip again it's a movie I'm interested to see, and it came out in slip. So I was like, right, well, I'm just it's it's going to be the Is same. That the old fifties version? No, it's like thirties, I think. Okay, uh, then I haven't seen that. It's not like the one that came out in the fifties. Yeah, nineteen thirty-two. This is the film that was made on the same lot, the same set. King Kong. King Kong. I remember that now. Yeah, I, t- I remember. Yeah, I remember. I talked about it the last episode. I don't think it had arrived by then. I think it was just I was waiting for it to arrive. Um, and I also have the 4K of the, their Dr. Cagliari release. That's I want that, yeah. yeah um, it's coming out soon. Uh, I have that pre-ordered. Again, I have no need for it right now because I still don't have a 4K player. But <laughs> You're um, prepared when it happens. I'm prepared for when it happens, exactly. As as Neve said, I was I was debating buying it. And she was like, well, you might as well because you're, you're future-proofing yourself. Yeah, You might as well yeah. buy it because you will be able to watch it eventually and you don't want it to go out of print. So I was like, okay, stop enabling me, but okay, let's go. <laughs> You've taught her so well. It's exactly why I've spent so much money in my life. Uh, ah, I will buy another copy if I get this one. Well, see, it's because she will come to me now in a couple of weeks and be like, hey, Adam, I think I might get this iPhone on finance. And I'm like, uh, okay. <laughs> You've enabled me. I might as well enable you back. Uh, what, uh, <laughs> when is the wedding? Is it next summer? Is that right? Yeah, next next June, June twenty eighth. Um, if either of you guys are in Ireland, June twenty eighth, you are not the listeners. I mean, Zach and Chris. If either of <laughs> you guys are in Ireland, June twenty eighth, you are more than welcome to come. Yeah, hey, I'm gonna try. Yeah. Like, I'd love we'll to go to there. Ireland. Um, but the reason I was asking is that July we're gonna see. Uh, well, I don't know when you're gonna take your honeymoon and all that, but after all that's done, the next week we're gonna see a four K player, and all of a sudden you're gonna be talking about <laughs> watching movies on four K. <4K. laughs> for sure, for sure, that'll be the yeah. Well, that's the thing because 
I will eventually get a new Xbox, which has a 4K player in it. Okay. So I'm not just going to buy a 4K player. I just eventually I will upgrade my Xbox eventually when and, it dies. So. And 4K TVs are, are coming down a lot in price. So by next year, I already year, have one be... of those anyway. So I already oh, have perfect. a 4K TV. So I'm, ready yeah. to go. That's what, so I'm streaming in 4K at the moment when I stream stuff. Um, but yeah, don't no, no actual discs in 4K. Yeah. I'll make this short, but it's always so interesting to see the prices of TVs. I remember when 1080 TVs first came out. My parents got, you know, and they were bulky like HD TVs back then. And they got, I think they got like their taxes back or something. They paid almost two grand for a 50 inch TV. Yeah. And of course, with inflation, that's probably like $2,500, $2,600. And now it's like, I can go buy a 50 inch TV for like 400 bucks like yeah, it's true it's, yeah and it's like that's insane like tv prices just aren't that bad anymore okay since we're on this tangent did i tell you all the story about you know sony makes a tv called bravia which is yeah, very bravia. nice like clean uh edges like it has like a glass that goes all the way to the edge and it's just like a very clean looking tv we had one we bought one back in 2010 or 11 something like that and it probably weighed a hundred pounds <laughs> I don't know. like paper thin now. <laughs> yeah, it weighed so much that when, um, let's call it three years ago, when we tried to wall mount it because we were redoing the room, it broke the wall. <laughs> it just like, it did like we had to do a wall repair job. Uh, and, and so finally we were like, we just need to get a new TV. So yeah, we went to the store and we got the same Bravia TV. It was on sale for like 320 bucks. And it was, we got a bigger one. Like, what is happening right now? (laughs) That is a prime example as to why I refuse to mount a TV. All of my TVs will only be on top of a a coffee table or, you know, a a TV set table. uh, uh I will never mount a TV on a wall. (laughs) Ours is mounted, but my dad did it. So I was like, it's not my fault if it breaks. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. All right. And welcome back. And now we're going to get to our... uh, Second part of our uh, women directing noir with um, might as well just get there with Mickey and Nikki, or as correctly pronounced, Mikey and Nikki, uh, directed by Elaine May. Uh, here's a little background for anyone who hasn't seen it. This is what it's about in Philadelphia. A small time bookie who stole mob money is hiding, and he begs a childhood friend to help him evade the hitman who are on his trail. All right, so let's get started with Chris since you picked this. What did you think? Okay, I know uh, we're going to hopefully get into some rich discussion on this. I love this movie so much. Um, It is a little bit higher than The Hitchhiker. It's ranked at 1,231 overall. I'd put The Hitchhiker higher. I would as well. I might actually be okay with that as well. just for context, it's directly behind Il Sorpasso. Um, and Ooh, I don't know if I agree with what that. What is that? <laughs> oh, we watched it in the film club a few weeks ago. It's a great movie. Really, really good. Yeah. I thought that might be a little controversial. Uh, yeah, but it, it technically that. falls behind it. So Il Sorpasso is technically one ahead. Oh, okay. Um, I do agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, you know, obviously, we'll. I want to hear what y'all think. Just in... in Quickly, I'll say um, one of the things that I've always loved about Cassavetti's movies, even though it sounds like a joke, is he's able to do a lot while people are screaming. 
and I know it sounds like a joke, but like, I think it's really hard to pull it off because like, you know, it's easy just to yell at each other, but like he, he's able to, his, that, you know, he gets these like amazing actors in his movies that can do a lot and emote a lot, even while they're screaming. And it's something that I've always been really fascinated with, with his movies. So the fact that Elaine May almost kind of made like her version of a Cassavetes movie uh, as if Cassavetes were going to direct a noir or something and then brought him in to act along with Peter Falk, who's I think a very underrated actor. Um, he's such a good actor. Uh, for me, this movie hits all the right feels and all the right buttons. I loved every frame in this movie, basically. But let's let's hear a more balanced opinion. What do you all think? Um, well, I agree with you on two things. Um, yeah, this film, despite being made by Elaine May, like definitely feels like a Cassavetes movie. Maybe it's just because he's in it and it kind of makes you kind of automatically think of his films because he himself was in it. But it definitely has the same kind of chaotic nature. Like you said, people shouting at each other. No real kind of balance in dialogue or anything like that. It's just kind of say your lines and we'll film them and we'll figure it out in post. Yeah. Um, so that definitely, definitely has a, has a feel of a Cassavetes movie. I'm not really overly familiar with Elaine May. I haven't seen any of her other of her other films. I know she made Ishtar, which I know gets is is quite liked. Um, I haven't seen it. Um, looking at her filmography, the only other film I've seen her act in is the Graduate. Um, and I haven't seen the Graduate in about ten years, so I I don't remember who she plays in the Graduate. Um, but um, yeah, it definitely has a Cassavetes feel feel, and then. Peter Falk, right? I, I need you to, I need someone to tell me what Peter Falk's deal is. I love Peter Falk. I've never seen Columbo. I've only ever seen him just kind of show up in movies. And I absolutely love him to death. What is Peter Falk's deal here? Like, is is Columbo like his big thing? Does everybody know him as yeah, Columbo? Or, basically. okay. Okay. And he just happened to kind of show up in movies every now and again? Uh, no, I, I think it's, I think he had a, respected and like established movie career it's okay. just if you stop people on the street and you say peter falk if they do know the name it's most likely they're going to know him from columbo that's all because it was a long-running tv show yeah when did columbo air so did it come out mainly after he had done a lot of his features it just kind of seems weird that you have a guy who is respected in movies but also has a long-running series kind of concurrent to his movie career you don't really see that very often yeah um let me see if i can get it really quick so i know it was i'm just pulling up here on wikipedia uh it aired from okay 1989 to 2003 no hold on that's not right no 71 originally 70... 71 to 78 so it seems like it was running concurrently to the bulk of his film career right is that that's yeah. that's kind of that's kind of interesting though you don't really see that very often that you no. have someone heading up, I guess, like you don't really see the head of CSI Miami also making a lot of movies at the same time. What's, what's that dude's name? David Caruso, is it? Yeah. Uh, like you don't really see him in movies, you know, while heading up a very, like a commercially successful TV series. So yeah, I just never really knew what Peter Fox deal was. I've never really seen Columbo. It's not really something that was shown in Ireland or anything like that. Maybe a certain generation will remember him, but I've only ever seen him in like this and uh, he wings the desire where he plays a, a, a fictionalized so version of himself. I love yeah, that. that's what I was going to bring up. I think Vin Vendors uses him really creatively. 
yeah he's, um, but he's such a good actor like i'd love to see more of his movies um i might even i might even watch some colombo because um he's just so magnetic he's just a really really great performer he's kind of like uh like joe pesci in a way he's just a really good sort of performer he has an interesting sort of mannerism about him yeah no, definitely. I, I'm, I'm being. I have a lot to say on that, but I want to see um, Zach's response before I dive into that because I, I love Peter Falk. But I what do you think of the film? I liked it. Uh, I think it's one of those films for me. I needed to be in a different mood to appreciate it fully. I watched this, and because I have such a shit memory when it's going to come, like if I watched these right when you told us to, like three weeks ago, I would have forgotten a lot of it. So I wait till close to when we're recording yeah and i watched it so i watched it right after the hitchhiker which i feel like is has a, they both have a lot of energy to them but they're very different ways and so oh. when i kind of got to this one it wasn't quite what i was thinking it was going to be and I, I mean i kind of figured it out once i saw john cassavetti so i didn't realize he was in it i was like oh okay this is chinese <laughs> sort of thing okay um and I liked it. I appreciate it a lot. You know, I, I'm a big fan of um, John Steinbeck's The Mice and Men, and it has a lot of that feel to it, of uh, that type of relationship for me. So I did enjoy that. But yeah, I think it's going to have to be one I'm going to have to revisit down the road eventually. Okay. What is the parallels to of Mice and Men? I'm curious. I like, that's I like the best that. take. That's the best take of this of this whole podcast. <laughs> I don't know. It's just like that's what their relationship reminds me of because I kind of do that one. I wish I could remember which one's which, but one of them just feels like really dumb, and one of them is just trying to take care of the other in their own sense of <laughs> twistedness that doesn't quite line up. But there's a heart to it. Like they're like, yeah, we'll we'll figure it out, sort of idea. That's how it, what it came across for me. Yeah, amazing. I, I totally understand where you're coming from there. That's that's hilarious. <laughs> um. That's going to be hard for me not to think about that now. <laughs> you said it. Um, so just real quick, Elaine May does not, has not directed a lot of movies. That's one of the reasons you probably haven't seen that much from her. She only directed four. Um, a New Leaf is probably one of the most underrated comedies to come out in the 70s. Very funny movie. Not at all like Mikey and Nikki. It has Walter Matthau. And he plays a conniving, like con man kind of guy who comes in and takes over the Elaine May plays the lead. She's a mousy kind of um, bookish type of woman who has a large sum of money. And the first half of the movie, it seems like he has the upper hand. And then, you know, as as comedies do, they things tend to unravel for for poor Walter Matthau, who's just trying to get a good con in. Um, but it's a fantastic comedy. I have not seen The Heartbreak Kid. That's supposed to be very good. Then she did this and then Ishtar. So it's not like, you know, she's directed 40 movies or anything. She was mostly an actress. But her and Mike Nichols, speaking of The Graduate, her and Mike Nichols were either, no, I don't think they were married, but they did a lot of work together. They they started a, a improv and comedy club in Chicago that wound up producing a lot of famous actors. Um, and so her and Mike Nichols were kind of hand in glove for a long time. Um, and she, she was, yeah. So anyways, she, she was in, in and around like a lot of the creative and kind of comedy scene and, 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 and good acting, uh, that was coming out of Chicago for, for a long time. Um, I, okay. So 
Peter Falk for me is like you said he's the dumb guy in of mice and men. That's really funny. But this is the thing that I think he does so well is I think he's one of the most self-aware actors in that he knows exactly how people are going to perceive him. And, and I think he plays off of it very well. This is the, not to get into that, but that's the entire kind of backbone for Columbo is just that he's playing off the fact that he's this sort of folksy small time detective that's never going to solve the case. And he always comes in with like one, he's like, just, just one more thing I'm a little curious about. And then he basically like drives these, you know, super smart, savvy criminals crazy by his questions. And he's smarter than he looks. That's kind of like a big thing in Columbo. Um, what I loved about this, their movie here, I, I mean, is it okay if we just talk about spoilers a little bit? I know we always do, but I think it's so critical to like the way the story flows. Yeah, I don't think there's a ton you can really spoil in this movie anyway. It's just kind Perfect. of the very last, very, very end. But like, it's not a whole lot. In terms. Okay. It's, a, it's a very talk-heavy movie. It's a very character-driven movie as opposed to plot-driven. Okay, well, I'm going to spoil the very end, though, just to be clear. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, might as well. Um, because we see that the entire movie he's been setting up John Cassavetes. I think it makes the whole movie play differently because everything he does, you see it through the lens of like, he's setting him up and he's, you know, and I think it makes his interactions with John Cassavetes even more interesting because there's, he's not very good at being conniving and scheming. They still get into fights. They still walk away from each other. He's, you know, he almost blows up the plans like a couple of times because he has a temper and like, they both have tempers. I mean, Cassavetes is a wild man, but like, I just like the way that their interactions played out. I, I like the way that it was chaotic. And I like the way that, you know, you see him with a specific plan from the mob boss to go get Nikki, which is John Cassavetes. And even with all that, he almost messes it up just because he like, you know, he has a relationship with this guy and they have like a history and they fight and they, they bicker almost like, you know, brothers or something. So that's interesting then because you've you've just said something that I didn't actually understand first time around. So Peter Falk was in on this from the start. I thought that was something that kind of happened towards the end. No, I think he's remember because he's always making these phone calls and he's giving his wife directions of like when mm. to meet and where to meet. So oh, the whole movie okay, he's okay. Yeah, so he's that. yeah, 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 yeah. So he's trying to do his best to coordinate the hit on this guy the whole time but he's just not very good at it right okay i just i didn't that went over my head at some point because i obviously i knew that he met the boston at the end and they kind of said this is when he went this is when obviously he went to uh went to peter when john cassavetti went to peter falk's house yeah um, i obviously understood what was happening then he was trying to get him to open the door to or yeah john cassavetti was trying to get into peter falk's house but peter falk was like saying no don't let him in don't let him in to the to his wife um because obviously he knew what was going to happen but i didn't realize he knew the whole time that's interesting that's made me kind of see the film in a slightly different light well this is ned betty's whole character right because he's just driving around basically waiting for the hit but he's like this is kind of the joke in the movie though is he's like stuck in traffic and he can't find parking yeah and he's like it's taking him forever to get to the spot of the hit and he misses him twice because they 
partially because it's taking him forever and partially because Cassavetes is all over the place. And so he keeps like ruining the plans, right? Like he keeps getting in the way of the plans. Interesting. Yeah, that's made me kind of see the film a little bit, a little bit differently. That's that's a really interesting point. I don't know how I didn't pick up on that first time when I was watching it through. Oh, it's cool. I mean, Am it's... I the dumb one, Zach? Did you pick up that? Did you know that? Am I the dumb one? I wasn't sure if it was the whole time. Like, I, I didn't okay. pick up on some of the things Chris just said. I didn't, like, discount it, but I wasn't really sure when the plan started. You know, there, there's a there's a critical moment, if you remember. Do you remember when they get into a, the fight with the bus driver because they want to get off the bus early? Yeah. This is why this is why Peter Falk uh, or Mikey in this case Mikey would did not want him to get off the bus because he just laid out that plan to go to the theater, and so that's why he okay. called his wife. Gotcha. Yes. Okay, the theater does okay because there's a big thing about the theater. Yeah. Yeah. And but but Nikki's so volatile. He he just on a whim decides he wants to go see his mom's grave, and so you know I think the the, the beauty in this for me is that Falk the whole time is caught between like the plan versus the relationship he has with this guy. Right. And he's like trying to fight those two. That's interesting. Um, Yeah. It makes me actually want to go back and just rewatch this again. Just like already. Cause I was like, I think I did miss some stuff watching through it. Oh yeah. This is definitely a film that I know this is something I was going to bring up. Um, Like this is, and you get this a lot with, very character driven stories that there's a lot of stuff that you don't pick up because there's so much dialogue happening. Yeah. Yeah. So much little nuances and performances and things that they say off the cuff. There's, there's a lot of stuff that you, that you don't always pick up first time when you're watching these kind of movies. And it's like, it's, it's a lot easier to follow a plot as opposed to following a character. Yeah. And you can kind of tell it's going from A to B, B to C, C to D, the end. Whereas when characters, especially in movies like this, where characters are so chaotic and are just kind of shouting and screaming at each other for 90 minutes. But it's kind of a nice versus, actually, since I would say Hitchhiker is a lot more plot-driven. It's got good character work, but it's it's very plot-driven. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, that's that's definitely a good um, a good way to kind of tell them apart in terms of styles. Um, but yeah, it's easier to lose. It's easier to not pick up bits and pieces when you're relying solely on lumping through so much dialogue to kind of figure out where the plot is so yeah this is definitely a film i could revisit again you know a couple of times to try and see them finding all the little nuances and i should say it's my third time seeing it yeah so i'm sure that definitely helps yeah (laughs) i was was gonna ask you was was this your first (laughs) time viewing so yeah yeah um, it's good to know that, that it's not that it's not me and zach being silly <laughs> no 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 no. i i think it's i think you're right i think the first time you kind of get like sucker punched by all the dialogue and the energy and you're just kind of like you know punch drunk a little bit watching it like what's going on like just trying to catch up a little bit so going in knowing what it how it is and, and what kind of movie it is i think certainly helps a lot um it's it's the biggest critique of cassavetti's movies in general not again this is fully an elaine may movie i want to talk about that in a minute but just the fact that just going back to Cassavetes for a second, like it's the biggest critique of his movies is I think most people don't expect that when they sit down to like husbands or when they sit down to faces or when they sit down to the killing of a Chinese bookie or whatever, like they don't expect that. (laughs) And they're just like, what is happening right now? (laughs) You know, like this is intense. Yeah. Like I've only seen two of his movies, faces and shadows. And Mm -hmm. 
there yeah like i think faces kind of embodies itself a little bit more than shadows shadows tries to for the most part follow a plot um but yeah faces was just like kind of a slap in the face yeah, um, exactly. i think we all remember when we watched that kind of early in the film club it's like there's just so much shit going down and you're trying to follow what everybody is saying um because it, it's all given a level of importance because they don't they don't kind of usually when you're editing a film that has a lot of people talking you make the person the main character you're supposed to follow you make their dialogue a lot louder than everybody else's you kind of let the rest of it kind of fade into the background uh-uh. it's all the same level so you're just going wait wait, wait. okay who said that and all right oh, mm-hmm. shit, what are they talking about over here so you're, you're trying to follow stuff a lot um but yeah he's a filmmaker i need to see again i don't want to go off too much off the back because we're talking about elaine may here but it's hard to not it's hard to ignore Cassavetes when he's in the film and the style is so similar um but yeah he's a filmmaker I need to I need to watch more of to try and get a reading on him I, I'm interested in uh, the killing of a Chinese bookie and and the woman under the influence those are two that I do want to see and I'll try just, and get to those maybe before the end of the year just I think that... no go ahead Zach, no I was just gonna say um with uh Cassavetes uh, he's the one I want to get further into as well but like I've read article after article of like how to like break into his filmography, and all of them said the same thing: do not start with the killing of a Chinese bookie. It's like it has the coolest name. Do not start with it. You will hate his style if you are not familiar with it. <laughs> yeah, and it has two cuts as well. There's yeah. a there's there's a director's cut. Um, because I was asking um the other Zach in the film club about it because he's big on Cassavetes, and he was like, yeah, there's two cuts. Watch both of them. And I'm like, well, I'm probably not gonna do that <laughs> uh, one, which is the yeah best. which is the best <laughs> you know that kind of way but yeah but for for women under the influence just just to make sure you know this or anybody that's listening if they're like hey i want to go see that i just saw vortex yes like this week which is a gusper noe's two and a half hour uh drag through late stage dementia and, and late that. stage it, it's a it's a Good movie. I, I really enjoyed it, but very depressing. It looks like a light comedy compared to Woman Under the Influence. <laughs> like, like w- Woman Under the Influence is one of the more trigger warning kind of movies. Like, it's just if you have any mental health issues in your family, or especially if you grew up in a house where your parents were fighting a lot, like just heavy trigger warning for that movie because they really go for it. It is very hard to watch. Yeah, I've um, heard it's uh, it's it's quite a toughie. Yeah, Peter Falk and Gina Rollins are, for a long time, I said they were my favorite actors, mostly on the back of their performances there. They really laid it all out. Um, but um, yeah, not something you watch just as, as a date movie. <laughs> just giving that. <laughs> uh, okay, anyways, Elaine May. So here's the thing that I think is so interesting. I, I, I listened to the first 10 minutes of the commentary. It got to be too late so i had to turn it off but there's one quote that i really liked about this so they said um one of the things that the the commentary the historian loved about mikey and nikki so much was that it they they were saying that it took a woman's touch to do this again i don't know that's a territory i don't really want to get into because that's sort of opening up a can of worms but this was a outsider's perspective of a noir film or a crime film and and it hit the beats of what it what it feels like to experience that world from somebody who doesn't really love those movies. It's almost like a 
you know, like you, 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 you have somebody kind of looking in at crime films or noir films and who maybe has a respect for them, but it's like they're reimagining or they're retelling of what that film is like through the lens of, instead of making these two men in this case, these stalwarts, you know, like the, like the Humphrey Bogart types or the whatever, like instead of making them these strong leading men, it's like making them these two broken goofballs uh, and, and, and just retelling this story through like that lens. Um, and uh, I really like that description of it. Yeah. Like for me, it's, it's a, it's a film about people involved in crime as opposed to the crime itself. We never see John Cassavetti steal the mob leader's money. All we see is the aftermath and how him and Peter Falk as, as humans, as individuals, deal with the consequences of yes. those actions. Yeah. Um, it's kind of like, you know, with Reservoir Dogs, the way people describe it as a heist movie without the heist. Yeah. It's, this yeah. is kind of this is kind of the same thing. It's it's a mob movie without a lot of the actual crime that gets involved except for obviously towards the the, the end of the film um when the hit happens but apart from that it's um it's 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 a film that basically looks at, at them as, as human beings as characters rather than as mobsters or as thieves or as criminals it's just looking at how two humans would interact in that in this kind of situation if you were a criminal and a hit was going out on a guy that you were good pals but since you were a kid how would you deal with that scenario? And then John, for John Cassavetes, it's how would you deal with the mortality, you know, knowing that you're probably going to die next time yeah. you step outside the door? Yeah. You know, what would your mindset be like? And Cassavetes, I think, embodies that really well with how manic and crazy his yeah. character is. Uh, manic is the word I was looking for. That's the perfect word, I think. Yeah. I, I love, there's like little details that I love about this. Like Cassavetes offhands just mentions that the mob boss doesn't really like Peter Falk. And so when they're in the room together, when Peter Falk's there with the mob boss, he actually asks them about it. <laughs> I like I love little touches like that. Like it's a very human, uh, I don't know, she brings a lot of humanity into that. Yeah. Well, that's again it, all of these kind of films, you know, these um these character-driven films, um it's 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 kind of like realism in a way. Um, yeah. Whereas realism, like like when, we, when I say realism, I'm kind of talking about like Italian neorealism or maybe like kitchen sink dramas, you know, like Ken Loach, that kind of stuff. Those are slice of, of life. That's, that's a moment in time presented to you or a, a real life scenario presented to you through film. Mm-hmm. Whereas something like this is not necessarily a moment of, in time, but it's just two people, this, a person or two people. This is like a 90 minute look into the minds of these two people these, yeah. and just to see how, how their emotions work, how they take, how they react to different situations. Yeah. So yeah. far less about what's actually happening from a plot point of view. It's just seeing how people interact with their surroundings and how they react to different moments and different actions. Love it. All right. And after Chris did a good job giving us some good movies for this week, I am going to torture Adam a little bit. Um, So our first (laughs) film is a 1977 film by George Barry called Deathbed, The Bed That Eats. And if you're curious if this is just like metaphorical, it is absolutely not. It is about a killer bed. A killer bed. Okay. Okay. And then the other film is, uh, might as well just 
keep it going. Uh, it is going to be a film by George Lita. I want to say your name. Also short, 93 minutes. I kept them short for you, Adam. Uh, called Battle Heater. It is about a killer portable heater. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> and Couldn't think where, of a better way to end my last picks of the year. Where where does one even watch these movies? Uh, both of them are free on YouTube. Oh, fabulous. Yeah, so yeah, because I tried, yeah, I think two, we might have 2B for Deathbed because that's the perfect 2B movie ever. <laughs> and honestly, go to Deathbed on Letterboxd and see the um, the rating uh, spread. It's amazing. We're watching movies called Deathbed and Battle Heater. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and don't get confused. There is a Deathbed from 2002. This is the 1977 film. It actually has like the subtitle, The Bed That Eats. So. <laughs> Very okay. distinct. Okay. Okay. You heard it here. Yeah. You heard you you heard it here first, folks. That's bad. The bet. Yeah. Wow. That is a that is a crazy spread of ratings. Yeah, <laughs> I, I've never seen one like that. It's awesome. Uh, Battle heater. Battle heater is a bit more a bit more uh, kind of middling, um, but yeah, it's a crazy spread for deathbed. Well, really, this is mostly for yeah. deathbed, and I just had to try to find a movie that would. Uh, Go okay. <laughs> so inanimate object killing so it was either that or i think the lift was the other option that uh they kill our elevator maybe okay so, there well, we go train... <laughs> i wasn't expecting that how that episode was gonna go okay and for for people that want to um that are that are, I, I mean i'm probably going to enjoy this week uh but for people that don't want to watch that if you want to come chat on the criterion film club we're going to be watching a Chantal Ackerman movie called uh, the, the Rendezvous of Anna. Looks it's looking like that's going to pull ahead. Is that so, the one that won in the end? Well, not officially, but it looks like it's pulling ahead. So Down I hope I've read about the other one. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Deathbed and Battle Heater. I can't wait. <laughs> Deathbed, Battle Heater. Okay. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Come back for us to talk about these fucking movies next week. <laughs> <laughs>